Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. So, the Summer Olympics ended last week. In the Olympics, success is counted in terms of medals. And so, with 24 medals, it's been a very good year for Canada. And so, for the athletes then, getting a medal at the Olympics is the dream. The dream they've dedicated every waking hour working towards. It's at the Olympics where their dreams come true or their dreams are shattered. And so for us this morning, we start with the question, what are your Olympics? What's your dream? What are you working towards? What do you want for your life? For some of us, the dream may very well be to get a medal at the Olympics. But for those of us who are less athletically inclined, Perhaps it's it's that dream school, dream job, dream retirement, dream family, dream house, dream vacation. What's your dream? One good indicator of our dreams is our summer life, how we live our lives during the summer. That time when many of us take a couple of months to live the life we've spent the rest of the year dreaming about. Another good indicator of our dreams is our prayer life. As you respond to the ups and downs of life, our prayer life, how we pray, why we pray, what we pray about, is often a good snapshot of our dreams for life and how we see God fitting into those dreams. In today's psalm, Psalm 71, it's a prayer that gives us a snapshot into the psalmist's dream. The psalmist is old with gray hairs He's seen plenty of ups and downs in his time. And at the moment, his situation is very much down. He's in trouble. And so before we go on, let's just quickly take a moment to look at the situation he's in. Verse 4, he's in trouble, serious trouble. He's asking God to rescue him from from wicked, unjust, cruel people. Verse 7, his trouble is public. He's a portent, which means warning sign to many. And then verse 11, his trouble is public but lonely. God seems to have forsaken him. And still in verse 11, his trouble is relentless and suffocating. People are watching his life, planning to pursue and seize him. The psalmist is in serious trouble, trouble that's public, lonely, relentless and suffocating. And yet, in the midst of his troubles, as it is for so many of us, it's in the midst of his troubles that the psalmist's dream for his life, what he wants most is revealed in his prayer. And then in his prayer, we also see something in the psalmist that is is most unexpected given the trouble we know he's in. We see an unshakable confidence in God. And so in reverse order, these are the two things we'll be looking at this morning. The psalmist's confidence and the psalmist's dream. The psalmist's confidence and the psalmist's dream. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time on the psalmist's confidence. So don't panic when we're 20 minutes in and still on the first point. And so to our first point, the psalmist's confidence. Throughout Psalm 71, we see the psalmist's unshakable confidence in God's provision and protection. 
even though he's clearly in serious trouble, his lament about his pain and his cries for help are constantly interrupted with expressions of confidence in God, recalling how God has delivered in the past and declaring with certainty that God will deliver in the future. The psalmist's confidence is, is clear, something we see throughout the psalm, but let's just take a look at verses 1 to 6. We start with verses 1 and 2 with the psalmist's pleas for help. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. But then in verse 3, the pleas for help become expressions of confidence. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. You have. You are. These are words of confidence in what God has done and who God continues to be. But then in verse 4, he goes back to asking for rescue. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. And in verses 5 and 6, he goes back to writing about his trust and praise of God. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. We see here the psalmist has been trusting and walking with God since his youth. And now, in his old age, he interprets all of his life's ups and downs through the lens of a lifetime of intimacy with God. A lifetime of God's faithful deliverance and comfort as he's leaned on God. You know, I love that word leaned in verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. This idea of completely trusting and depending on God by leaning, putting our whole weight on Him. You know, so when I was in uni, there was an annual cardboard boat race. And it's exactly as it sounds. To take part, all you needed was just to build a boat made out of cardboard. And how it went is exactly how you'd imagine a race made out of cardboard boats would go. Some boats, many of the boats, would sink immediately under the weight of its crew. Some boats would look promising at first, but then have a slow sink over time. The year that I watched the race, I remember clearly there was a boat that was designed rather creatively as a hamster wheel. And so despite the very best of intentions and vigorous, enthusiastic movement from its crew, the boat made no movement forward, but just spent its time slowly sinking into the river till it could sink no more. And then there were some boats put together with what seemed like a year's supply of duct tape that, that, that they were able to hold the weight of its crew and all their alcoholic beverages. But even then, even these, the very best boats that cardboard has to offer, I don't think we'll be seeing any of these at the Olympics anytime soon or at any round-the-world voyages because cardboard boats are good fun but they're not what we would call reliable. And here's the thing. Don't we all sometimes treat God like a cardboard boat? We often live like we're not quite sure if he's that reliable, not sure that we can or want to lean on him, not sure if God can take our weight in times of trouble. 
Christ City, our God is not a cardboard boat. We can lean on Him because God can take our weight. The issue is not actually whether God can be trusted. The issue is what, we are, what are we trusting Him for? You see, if you're like me, often we trust God enough to ask Him to make our dreams come true. But we don't quite trust Him enough to ask Him what we should be dreaming for. And then when God doesn't give us exactly what we want, when our dreams don't materialize, our faith then spirals out of control because we think He's either unwilling or He's unable. Either He doesn't love us enough or He's not powerful enough to give us what we want. This is an important point, and we're going to come back to this later, but for now, the point is that our confidence in God means trusting Him, not to give us what we want, but to do what is right, and for all of us who are His, to do what is good and necessary for us. Look at how the psalmist addresses God in verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. Don't we all want that kind of confidence of deliverance? Complete confidence, even in the midst of life's storms. The human desire for confidence has, has created a multi-billion dollar industry of ad campaigns, confidence coaches, and self-help gurus. But none of these quite work, do they? Because if they did, the whole industry would collapse. So where then can we, that, can we get that kind of unshakable confidence from? Where does the psalmist's confidence come from? His confidence comes from this, intimacy with God based on knowing who God is and what he has done and responding with trust and praise. Let me say that again. His confidence comes from intimacy with God based on knowing who God is and what God has done and responding with trust and praise. Let's unpack each part of this sentence Firstly, intimacy with God. For the psalmist, a lifetime of walking with God and leaning on Him has produced not just confidence in God, but an intimacy with God. You see, ours is a God who doesn't seek a cold, lifeless relationship of control, but a personal relationship of love, trust, and intimacy. The psalmist's relational, personal language with God really stands out in this psalm, doesn't it? He's speaking directly to God throughout the psalm. And he describes God with such intimacy and familiarity. Because God is not just to him a rock and a fortress. Like it says in verse 3, he's my rock and my fortress. Skip ahead to verse 5. He's my hope, my trust. Verses 4, 12, and 22, he's my God. You know, this degree of intimacy between any two people is really remarkable, let alone between a person and God. Brett used this illustration last week, and I'm going to use it again because it, it does a good job of showing what's happening here. 
I'd like to see Brett as my friend. And as far as I can tell, the feeling is mutual. He's also my colleague. And he's even my pastor. But I would never go so far as to say that he's my Brett. As much as I treasure my relationship with Brett, calling him my Brett is, is a level of intimacy that we'll never reach because that's marriage language. And yet, that's the kind of language God calls us to use with him. Because that's the kind of intimacy God calls us to share with him. This picture of marriage is, is a picture God uses throughout Scripture. The entire book of Hosea says that Israel worshipping other gods was like committing adultery on the one true God. Ephesians 5.32 says human marriage refers to Christ and the church. Paul writes, this mystery referring to marriage is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, not all of us have had positive experiences with marriage, either in a marriage or observing a marriage from the outside. But marriage is the picture used because in the Bible, marriage is the most intimate relationship possible between two human beings. And so that's the picture God uses to describe the intimacy He wants with us. You can't force this intimacy. It can't be manufactured overnight. It's the result of a deepening relationship that can only be nurtured over a lifetime of walking with God. It starts with knowing who God is and what he has done. The psalmist's confidence in God in this psalm is, is rooted in who God is. In this psalm, the psalmist focused specifically on two key attributes of God, his sovereignty and his righteousness. Both of these are important. God's sovereignty means he's always in control. He's always able to, to do as he wills. The key is in verse 20. You who have made me see so many troubles and calamities, will revive me again. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities. You see, God's sovereignty is such that the psalmist understands that God is completely sovereign. Even the many troubles and calamities that he faces, he knows he does not face them outside of God's control. But God's sovereignty is not enough for us to be confident that he will deliver us, is it? Because he, God must also be righteous, which means that God always acts according to what is right. And he then is the standard to us and for us of what is right. We, we need both of these because if God were not sovereign, we can't be confident that he's able to do what is right. But if God was not righteous, we can't be confident that he's willing to do what is right. But our God is a God we can be confident in because he is both sovereign and righteous. Because he's sovereign, we can be confident that he can save his people because he's in complete control. And because he's righteous, we can be confident he's willing to save his people because he promised he would. It's in God's righteousness that the psalmist places his confidence. 
For example, look at verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Verses 15 and 16. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. And then skip it to verse 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You see, the psalmist's confidence comes from his knowledge of God's sovereignty and righteousness. God can, God wills, and God promises to provide and protect. But I'd like us to notice something else here. The psalmist's confidence comes not just from descriptions about God's righteousness and sovereignty, but experience of God's righteous acts. You see, it's not just that God can, God wills, and God promises to provide and protect, but that God has provided and protected. God's righteousness is not just described in word, it's experienced by his people, revealed in his righteous acts, his deeds of salvation, his mighty deeds, and the great things he has done. Our confidence comes from the fact that God's righteousness and sovereignty are not just theory we hear about, something we've heard about. They're reality, something we've experienced. Like the psalmist, we look back at how God delivered his people in the past. But then as we walk with God, as we read his word, we look in at our lives and we say, hey, God did that for me too. You see, the same God who worked great things in the lives of those before us is the same God working great things in our lives today. And then we look up and we look around and we find that we are not alone. The same God who's working in our lives is the same God working the lives of those around us. You see, to look forward with confidence, we must spend time looking back in history looking in at ourselves and looking around at those around us in our community. And so this week, why not spend some time looking back, looking in and looking around? Spend some time recalling and thinking about God's work in your own life. Or better still, tell someone about it. Meet up with someone and ask, how has God been working in your life? You see, the beauty of this psalm is that even though it's written in such an intimate and personal way, it's also written to be sung in community. And we do this every Sunday when we gather and sing the truths about God, about who He is and what He has done with and to each other. But we also do this in another sense whenever we meet each other to tell each other about what God is doing in our lives. You see, the Christian life is never meant to be sung alone. One great way to do this is in a community group. And, and as we come out of the pandemic, if you don't have a CG, as we prepare to relaunch our CGs in the fall, can I, can I just encourage you to join one? Don't go on singing the Christian life by yourself. Even if you don't think you need someone to be walking with you, then someone needs you to be walking with them. 
And as we talk about knowing God, if you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian, can, can I just say, there's a big difference between knowing God and, and, and just knowing about God. Take all the time you need. Ask all the questions you have. Talk to people, attend Alpha, read books, watch videos, explore all you can and all that you need. But there comes a point when the only way you can truly know that a boat can take your weight is by stepping into the boat. The only way you can know God as opposed to just knowing about God is to take that step of faith and walk with Him. And so back to the third part of our statement. Our confidence comes from walking intimately with God based on knowing who God is and what he has done, and then responding with trust and praise. Because the Christian life is a life of response. Intimacy is never a one-way street. As we know God more and more, we respond to God with trust and praise. Look at how often the language of praise comes up in our psalm. For example, look at verses 22 to 23. I will, praise, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And, and just look at the psalmist's praise in verse 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You know, when the psalmist says this, he's actually responding to a specific event in Israel's history. When a psalmist is talking about the great things God has done, when he's saying, God, who is like you? He's referring to the event of the Exodus, the great salvation event in Israel's history. When God heard the cries of the Israelites, when they were trapped in slavery, and when God, res when God rescued them from under the hand of the wicked Pharaoh of Egypt. And so after they were rescued, the Bible records a song of praise that Israelites sang. One of the lines from this song is this, from Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, under, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's not just in this psalm, so much of praise throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is, part, of the, is the part of the Bible written before Jesus came to earth. It's a response to the great salvation event of the Exodus, the great event of God's righteous deliverance of his people from slavery. And as we tie everything together to where we are today, you see, the beauty of living where we are at this point of history today, after Jesus has come, is that while we can pray and we should respond and praise God for the salvation event of the Exodus, like the psalmist does, we can also respond and praise God for an even greater Exodus, an even greater salvation event, an event that Psalm 71 and all of Scripture points to, the event when God himself came down. When Jesus died on the cross for all of us, delivering us from slavery under the hand of the evil one, paying the penalty for our sins so that we can, by faith, walk intimately with God. Because of 
that great salvation event, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we can say with confidence, as the psalmist does in verse 18, Oh God, do not forsake me. We can say this with confidence because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was forsaken so that we wouldn't be forsaken. So that we could call, so we could address God as he does. My God. We can say with confidence as the psalmist says in verse 20, you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Because we can say this with confidence because the Spirit of God now dwells in all of us who are God's people. Romans 8, 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And we can say with confidence, as the psalmist does in verse 2, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Because on the cross, as it says in Colossians 1.13, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his, of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it was at the cross the greatest salvation event, that God's righteousness was completely revealed. It is through the cross that we have deliverance, redemption, and the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, it is because of the cross and to the cross that we look that gives us confidence in all of life's ups and downs. Christ City, when you're in trouble, when we're in trouble, when you're tempted to despair, look back at the cross through which you've already been saved by faith. And because of the cross, look in and around at how the Spirit of God continues to work in your life and the life of those around you. And then look forward with absolute confidence in God's promise that one day all trouble will be over and one day we will see Him face to face. Isn't that the dream life? Which brings me to our second point, the psalmist's dream. We started this morning asking the question, what's your dream? What do you want? As for the psalmist, the psalmist wants nothing more than to spend his days praising God for who God is and what God has done. A lifetime of walking intimately with God, trusting Him through life's ups and downs, this has given the psalmist an unshakable confidence in God's protection and provision. Confidence that he will praise him again. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 71 shows us there's no greater dream than to walk in intimacy with God. Our God who forsaked his own son so that we would never have to be forsaken. Who put his son to death so that we could be delivered and rescued from death. But if we, are, if, if we are being honest with ourselves, for many of us, for many times, that's, that's not really our dream, is it? We don't really want God right now. We don't really want intimacy with God just yet. Yes, I mean, we see God as a ticket for the dream life for after we die. But 
But for now, before we die, we have so many other dreams we have for ourselves. The point today is this, that any dream we can dream for ourselves pales in comparison to the confidence and joy of walking intimately with God. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, it's only in God's presence that we can have fullness of joy. <laughs> the Olympics, that dream school, dream job, dream retirement, dream family, dream house, dream vacation, none of them can compare. To the, can compare. The only dream worth having is this, a life lived walking in intimacy with God, knowing who He is and what He has done and responding with trust and praise. I'm going to end with a, with a story about a, a bishop named Polycarp in a place called Smyrna in AD, around AD 155. By this time, Polycarp was an old man, probably at least in his mid-80s. And at this time, the authorities had started torturing and putting to death all those who refused to worship the pagan gods. And so soon, Polycarp, being a prominent Christian leader, was on their radar. After learning that he was on their radar, that, that he was being sought by the authorities, Polycarp initially hid for a few days. But then, after deciding that his arrest was the will of God, he stopped hiding and he was soon caught and brought to trial. At the trial, the trial was an interesting one. The judge asked Polycarp to consider his old age and so tried to persuade him to avoid the charges by worshipping the emperor. And Polycarp refused. The judge tried again and, and Polycarp refused again. And the judge tried again saying, telling Polycarp that all he had to do was to swear by the emperor and curse Christ. And then he'll be released. Listen to Polycarp's reply. For 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? For 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Polycarp was sentenced to death and, and just before he died, when tied to the pyre, just before they burned him to death, Polycarp prayed out loud, Lord Sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. Christ City, may we live and may we die with such confidence and conviction, living our lives for the one who gave his life for us so that we might have eternal life, a life spent walking intimately with him, knowing who he is and what he has done, and responding with trust and praise for the rest of our days till we are with him face to face in glory.